Good morning to you all. It's just an absolute blessing to, to be here. Um, really a, a little bit of a taste of heaven, isn't it? When you think about heaven and that, that moment when Christ returns and restores all things, we're just going to be a, around a bunch of people we don't know personally, right? may not know everybody's names, but through the union that we have in Christ, we're brothers and sisters. We're part of a family, so it's actually really nice to, to be welcomed and to, to come to another church in the valley and uh, just feel like I'm just seeing extended family that I haven't met yet. So just thank you for uh, just your hospitality and kindness and uh, just having me this morning. So this morning, uh, we'll be uh, looking at Psalm 8. So if you would, please turn there. thought technology was going to be on my side this morning, but I suppose not. It's okay, i got to back up. So I couldn't pick a better title for this uh, sermon than just using exactly what the ESV says in there, where it says, How majestic is your name? And that's the title that it gives for Psalm 8. Now, Dan just mentioned that you've got a lot of people going out for vacations and traveling. And for me and my family, that's something we do as well. I know for us, this is camping season. You know, we don't get to do it as often as we would desire to, uh, but we absolutely love to go camping, whether it's uh, in Likely, California with my in-laws, which I'd probably call glamping more than anything. I mean, it's in our trailer and we go golfing. Uh, But uh, we do have a, uh, what we call our man's trip with my dad and his uncles and my cousins. We always go up to uh, the Sierras, uh, typically around Mammoth, and uh, we do fishing and hiking and just uh, guy stuff, right? And the kids love it because they're always saying no girls allowed, and uh, it's just a great time. But one thing that I get to do whenever we go camping, uh, it doesn't matter where we are. Once you get away from the city limits, once you get away from uh, the light pollution that we have in the sky, right? Uh, sitting around the campfire and just gazing at the stars above, you can't help but just say, God, how majestic is your name? Really, I don't think we give enough thought to how expansive the universe really is. That's why I absolutely love reading these, these articles that I see about how far our, our telescopes are reaching and how far these images that they're bringing back are, you know, how big these distant galaxies are. All I see is God's creation, right? I, I think every advancement that these astronomers uh, get to make just showcases God's creation and how glorious he is. And the fascinating thing is just no matter how far we think we can reach with whatever telescope or with whatever uh, equipment that we might have, it doesn't even compare to that vastness that we see in the universe and ultimately the vastness of the God who created all of that. So I'd like to think that when writing Psalm 8, David was thinking the same thing, right? He writes about it, doesn't he? So I like to think that he was gazing at the same interstellar objects as I do every night that I get to and just looking at how majestic the creator is for creating it all. Right? It ultimately, it all should point to him. And how could we not look up at the heavens and end up saying ourselves, God, how majestic is your name? Now, all, all the benefit that we would gain if we just thought a little bit less of ourselves and more of God, right? We'd bring him glory. We'd bring him honor. We'd resist the temptation for our souls to be prideful. 
and we would also be tremendously comforted. So before we get into the text this morning, I'd like to just bow our heads in prayer. Well, Father God, you are blessed above all else. As our Lord begins in the Lord's Prayer, we say the same. Hallowed be your name. So when we pray to you, ultimately, your praise becomes, uh, comes before any of our petitions. So we must acknowledge the fact that you are above all else, and you are just so majestic and so mighty. Your holiness is just so supreme. It is so far beyond our comprehension. But yet you, just being as holy as you are, decided to make man in his own image and likeness, and you decided to uh, just commune with us by way of the Holy Spirit. And you love us, and you comfort us, and you care for us. You sent your own son to die for us. So God, the only thing that we can offer you is just praise and thanksgiving for who you are and for what you've done. So I just ask by the ministry of the Holy Spirit would just bring this word and may it just cut to our hearts. Would you just strip us of, of pride, help us to repent of sin, and would you just put us in our rightful place? And may our, our posture and our worship just be pleasing to you. And may you just accept these sacrifices of, of praise and prayer that we give you. And we could only do this through our mighty intercessor's name, Jesus. Amen. Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Church, that is the infallible and inerrant word of God. So this was a lot easier using my tablet, but now I've got a shuffle paper, but it works. So for those of you that may like taking notes, I made this pretty easy. I've got just three points I'd like to cover this morning. The first one being the majesty of God. The second one being man. And lastly, I'd like to just uh, look at the Messiah and how this points us to Christ. So the psalmist begins by proclaiming the majestic name of God. He says there in the beginning, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. That's obvious. The main purpose of this psalm is to express the supreme majesty of the name of God. Now we look at the word name, although it's, an, it's interpreted to the word name in our language. The Hebrew word Shem means much more than just your first name, like your name or my name. What it means is God's his fame, his renownness. It means his, his honor, his glory, his utter holiness, his reputation. 
You see, God's name is the essence of his character, right? Only God can be God. Only he can altogether be ideal, omnipotent, omnipresent, immutable, and eternal. And as Deuteronomy 4 says, he is God and there is no other besides him. He is God in heaven above and on the earth below and there is no other. And also God said to Isaiah, my glory I will give to no other. See, God cares about his name tremendously. So much so, that's why we see in the third commandment, right? That God specifically forbids blaspheming his own name. And this is why in the Old Testament that the appropriate punishment for blaspheming the name of God was death. God cares about His name. And everything that God does is for His namesake. See, this truth ought to bring great comfort and joy to us. God cares so much about His own glory and His own honor that He will not sacrifice His reputation and allow His name to be tainted in any way by not caring for His creation, by not providing for it, or by somehow neglecting His covenant with man, neglecting that plan of redemption, or forgetting the promises that he made to man. Now let me be clear here. God cannot be accused of violating in any way any of these truths. We must remember that although God is the ultimate cause of everything, and as the Westminster Confession says, uh, he is uh, not only the ultimate cause, but all things that come to pass are ordained by him. We cannot act in any way, or he cannot act in any way that, that I uh, violates just his perfect and ideal and sinless nature. He can't lie. He is perfect. And everything he does is perfect and good. And if we have any inkling of disagreement with his will, his will to do whatever he pleases, we must repent. See, the only rightful response to God's holy name is to be comforted and to be trusting and to give his holy name honor. Really, there's no other way to respond. Now, I want us to look at something that is very important, I think, uh, for us to understand. You don't need to turn there. I'm just going to paraphrase a little bit of what's going on. But uh, back in Genesis 15, right, we see this, this covenant that God makes with Abraham. And he tells Abraham, cut these animals in half and spread them over and one another. And we see this theophany. We see this. You know, God make his presence, his physical presence known to Abraham. And he comes by way of a smolding fire pot and a burning torch, as it says. And what God does is he passes between those animal carcasses. I know this may sound grim, this may sound obscure, but, but this is what, what this means. You see, back in their day, whenever a man made a covenant like that, right? Whenever he made a covenant, he was so sure that he would not break that covenant. Otherwise, he'd be cut in pieces like those animals. So what God is saying in this moment is that lest he uh, forget his covenant with Abraham, lest he fail at his promises that he makes with him, may he be cut in pieces. But at the same time, what's happening here is God cannot uh, swear to anything greater than himself. And I think that's very important to understand because in this moment we see this supremeness, right? The supremeness of his, of his being that there is no one greater than him. And this is where we find trusting in God comforting. 
He is the creator and the sustainer of all. And although he is supremely holy and above us and above all else, he still desired to care for man. See, this tremendous distance that we have is wretched, really, in comparison to God's utter holiness and his tremendous majesty. It truly is awesome to think about that God would create an entire universe, right, as big and as vast as it is, and care about just little human beings like you and me. I think this is why the psalmist says, right, in verse 4, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? In a sense, that should just blow our minds. We know what we deserve is our just penalty for sin. But nonetheless, since the foundation of the world, right, God had a redemptive plan to save humanity. and just shows this tremendous love and care that he has for his creation. We should not forget that. So God acts according to his perfect character. And he does everything according to his own name's sake. Or in other words, he does everything in order to uphold his perfect reputation. Let's just see what the testimony of Scripture says. This is long-winded, so so bear with me, but I I can't use any words better than than God's Word himself. Psalm 23.3, He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for my namesake. Psalm 25.11, For your namesake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Psalm 31.3, For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your namesake you lead me and you guide me. Psalm 79.9, Help us, O God, of our salvation for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your namesake. Psalm 106.8, Yet he saved them for his namesake, that he might make known his mighty power. Psalm 109.21, But you, O God, my Lord, deal on my behalf for your namesake, because your steadfast love is good. Deliver me. Psalm 115.1, Psalm 143, Isaiah 48.9, You get the picture. God cares about his name and he does everything that he does for his namesake. And he is no way narcissistic or egocentric or proud. We know that it violates his perfect and ideal nature. He is great because his name, his glory, his majesty, his holiness are all great. And it's no wonder that we have a universe to behold and to gaze at that is so mind-bogglingly vast. See, our finite minds can't even grasp that holiness, can we? And that's the point. Creation is a witness to His holiness and it ought to drive us to responding like Jeremiah where he says, There is none like you. O Lord, you are great and your name is great in might. O God, how majestic is your name. That brings us to the second point. What does man have to do with this? The psalmist also points to us and points us to the fact that although God created the universe and all that's in it, right, as the psalmist says, the moon and the stars, the birds in the sky, the animals on land, the fish in the sea, humanity though, humanity is the pinnacle of God's creation. David says, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and you crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and you have put all things under his feet. You see, David here is recalling the sixth day of creation, isn't he? 
where we see in Genesis 1, 26 through 31. Let me just read that for us. It says, Let us make man in our image. This is God speaking. After our own likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds and of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and morning, the sixth day. Peter Jones you may have heard of him. He's a, a Presbyterian minister, and he's a, a fellow at Ligonier Ministries. And he, he has a study on there called There's Only Two Religions. So his two religions that he speaks about is oneism and twoism, as he calls it, or we can call it paganism and Christianity. Right? There really is only true, true religions. You either believe in Christ and Christianity, or you don't. There is no in-between. There is no other. But oneism, oneism is the pagan belief that only nature exists and everything that's in it is made of the same stuff, right? God is all and all is God. That doesn't work. If there isn't a distinction between the creator and creation, then there is no God. There's just stuff. And then twoism has this distinction. There's the creation and then there's the one who made the creation. And if we think about the spirit of the age and all these popular pagan ideologies, think of climate change, the sexual and transgender revolutions. These are all religions in their own right, by the way. But they all have this same thing in common. They want to subvert the created order and to bring worship to the creation rather than give it to the creator. So they undermine and they deny the reality of Isaiah 43.7 that we are created for God's Glory. Think about these ideologies for a second. Just listening to, to Dan's prayer earlier. Look at the state that we are in with abortion. Look at the state we are in with just this hatred that we see for the family. Right? We see this breakdown of Genesis 1 and our societies are suffering because of it. Because overall we've denied the creator and our cultures would rather worship the creation. Instead, and you take your eyes off the Creator, you deny the reality of Him, you worship what is made rather than Him, you're only bound to suffer. That's just a part of living in a fallen world, isn't it? But praise be to God. Praise be to God that not only did Christ redeem us, right? He promised that all things would be made new, didn't He? What a fantastic promise to hold on to. You see, this kind of parallels what happens from Genesis 1 to Genesis 3, doesn't it? What did God say at the end of chapter 1? 
He made man in his own image, and it was very good. Things were perfect the way they were. But we see in chapter 3 that things changed, didn't they? This is where we call the fall. Where we see man and woman were deceived by Satan and his devices to be tempted into glory theft. They sought to be like God themselves. They were dissatisfied with the reality of the all-powerful caring for them that they desired power for themselves. So there's nothing new under the sun. Thousands of years later, the unbeliever still desires to do the same thing. They worship the creation and not the creator. You see, as Paul states in the book of Romans, this is absolutely inexcusable. No one could ever claim ignorance to reject the obligation to give God worship or escape his wrath against sin. Let me just read for us Romans 1. 18 through 23. I know I'm going back and forth. I apologize. But like I said, I, I just love going through Scripture because there's no better words they can use to explain uh, these truths to us. But Paul says in this letter to the Romans, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give him thanks, but they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory for the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And this is the point I'm trying to make. We, the imago dei, we are the image of God, or at least created in his image. We are created to know and to love him, to give him worship. See, we are obligated to worship God. And I believe that the church is, is not done very well at proclaiming this truth. Either churches fall into the side of inclusion or affirmation of paganism while falsely understanding Jesus' commandment to love our neighbors. Right? I think we see that. Or by so radically opposing paganism that we only offer condemnation. No good news. No grace. No gospel. David, as he is writing the psalm, most likely assumed that his audience have already understood inherently this idea that there's a creator and there's a creation and you worship one and not the other. But how do we reach the unbeliever or pagan? And mind you, I'm using those terms synonymously. Let's look at what Paul said to the Athenians in Acts 17. So Paul goes to Athens and sees that they're very religious. He sees all these statues and these things that they made with their own hands that they worship. That's what happens. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. As I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you, 
The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods, the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we have life and move and have our being. For even some of our own poets have said, For we indeed are his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought to not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness, by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So now I want to be clear on, on one thing. That is, God does not need creation to be glorified. He's not dependent on humanity or his creation. See, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit are absolutely uh, complete in and of itself. We know this because in John 17, Jesus says this, And now, Father, glorify me, in your own presence, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. See, there was perfect glory and majesty within the Godhead before creation ever existed. So we may glorify God, but it does not add to His glory. If we're adding to God's glory, it means that He's lacking. And if He's lacking, then He's not ideal. So in a sense, God does not need us. He does not need His creation. It just goes back to, to where that comfort should come from. That God created us so that we would glorify Him, so that He would make His name known to us. I think there's a, a tremendous care and love that we miss. right? Sometimes just our own suffering in life, throughout circumstances and our trials, sometimes we, we miss this, this fact that God created everything so He would know us and that He would love us, that He would care for us in some day have a perfect creation where sin not only is uh, not there in its presence but even cure creation of uh, its effects what a tremendous love God has for you and I you see the glory that we give to God is a proclamation and a witness of who he is and what he has done both David and Paul are proclaiming God's goodness and his worthiness of worship and praise because of who God is and, again, of what he has done. It looks like I didn't print out all my notes. looks like my backup is gone, but I think I remember we were taking this. But, but how does Paul end his address to the Athenians? He ends talking about the crucified Christ, doesn't he? You see, that's the whole reason for all of Scripture is to point to Christ. And although that God's creation creates this manifold witness to his existence, to his goodness, to his holiness, as he says, right? Only belief and trust in Christ and the gospel allows the human being who is blinded by sin to even see this truth and understand it, right? And that's the last point that, that I want to make here, and that's just, how does this point us to the Messiah? 
If you recall in John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to Christ by night. And he's attesting to all these miracles that are happening, and he's asking Jesus, how, how do you really believe this, really? And Jesus said to him, you've got to be born of spirit. You have to be born of water to see the kingdom of God. See, what this necessitates to believe who God is and what he has done is the new birth. And how are we born again? By hearing and believing the gospel. That's why the gospel is so important to be preached, to be understood, because without understanding the person work of Jesus Christ, nothing else can be believed. But what is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that God had a plan of redemption for human beings as soon as Genesis 3.15 came about, right? Where we saw Adam and Eve fall, we see this first proclamation of the gospel, that God would save those by grace alone, through faith alone, right then and right there. But faith in what? Faith in a Messiah to come. The one whom all the scriptures point to, as Jesus says in, in Matthew 24, with these two young men that he finds walking along uh, a road, where he says, all these scriptures point to me. The one who is God in the flesh. You see, God humbled himself so that his son would take on our likeness. And although Christ was truly God and truly man, he still suffered a sinless death, didn't he? And before that sinner's death, he lived that righteous life that we can't. See, Christ lived a perfect life according to the Father's law in every respect, in every way, he lived a life that we can't earn ourselves. So what he did was he took this perfect righteousness that he earned, he atoned for the sins of his people, and he takes that righteousness and he imputes it, he gives it as a transaction for our sin. We place our sin on him and he gives us, clothes us, as the scripture says, in his righteousness. He makes us clean in the sight of God. And although we still have a sinless nature, he gave us pardon. He called us brothers and sisters. He gives us a, a share in his inheritance that the Father gave him. And he rose, rose from the dead on the third day. See, that resurrection that, that Paul is, is speaking to the Athenians about, that's why Paul says in several places, we preach Christ crucified. Because if Christ never rose from the dead, then none of this is true. That Christ wasn't who he said he was. That this once-for-all sacrifice that he made wasn't enough. But you see, that resurrection on the third day, so that that payment was made in full. That it was accepted by God. And where did Christ go? He ascended to heaven. Where he sits on the right hand of the Father, reigning over all. And I'm glad that, that we read, uh, or Dan read this morning from Colossians. Because uh, I had that in my text this morning as well. And I kind of want to go back to it, so I hope you aren't tired of that. I know I'm not. Get beyond my... Pages are stuck together. Apologize. I am not doing well.
as you can tell, I haven't used this Bible as much as my others. Pages are a little stuck together. These smaller condensed Bibles are always tough to peel these pages back, but we have it. But in Colossians 1.15, it starts by showing this image of this preeminence that Christ has. And ultimately, this is why, where I want to take uh, this, this whole meaning of Psalm 8 is it all points to Christ as supreme. It says that the majesty of God is all above all else. Deserves all glory, all honor, all praise. But Jesus is the one who has the name above every name, doesn't he? See, it says in Colossians, starting in verse 15, that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. And he is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead. And that everything, he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. What more does this truth have with Psalm 8? Well, Christ takes Psalm 8 and he actually speaks of Psalm 8. Speaks of uh, Psalm 8, specifically verse 2. So I believe it's in Matthew uh, chapter 21, I believe. Uh, the cleansing of the temple. Where Christ goes into the temple and he sees uh, all the money changers. They were basically, what he says, turning his father's house of prayer into a robber's den. They were there for their own profit. They weren't there for worship of Almighty God. But he drove them out. He flipped their tables. And in doing so, the lame, the sick, the blind started coming to him, and he healed them. And children started shouting, Hosanna, save me, son of David. And Christ use, uses this verse in Psalm 8 in response to the fairies who say do you hear what these children are saying about you and what's in their minds is they were seeing is this blasphemy that was coming from their mouths how dare you use these words to just a man this is not God but Christ responds to them right and he says out of the out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. See, Christ is staking a claim on his own deity and his title is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. And this is a theme I want to point out of God using foolish things to shame the wise and weak things to shame the strong. If you could please turn to, uh, let's go to Matthew 11. I'll show you this.
So we see this in Matthew 11, starting at verse 25. And you'll see this, this theme that I'm talking about. At the time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to who? To little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will that all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see what... David believes and what Christ is looking back to that Psalm 8 and, and, and basically showing us is that the gospel truth is so simplistic that it's easy enough for a child to understand. And what a beautiful thing that God has made for the gospel to be understood by those who aren't somehow meeting, you know, whatever this expectation that we kind of set for ourselves, right? To know this doctrine or that, or to know our Bible, to know this. But the gospel is just the simplistic believing that Jesus said who he says he was. That he was the Messiah promised from Genesis 3.15. That he was the one who would redeem all of his people. The one who would atone for their sin. The one who would die as a suffering servant, bringing many sons to glory. And this is the economy of God that he uses these foolish things, as Paul calls them, to shame the wise. And since I'm without my manuscript, I usually use that as a guide to me, but I know where I want to end this. So flip to Hebrews chapter 1, if you would. This is probably my favorite book in the Bible. There's something that Hebrews does. Hebrews looks back to the Old Testament, right? Because its audience are, are Jewish Christians. You know, those presumably amongst the dispersion and they're, they're suffering and they're, they're falling away from the faith. But Paul, I mean, sorry, the writer of Hebrews, encourages these believers to trust in the supremacy of God's Son, Jesus. It says, long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom, this sounds just like Colossians, doesn't it? Through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. That's why just as the psalmist book ends, Psalm 8, with how majestic is your name, that's what we're ending this with. right? How majestic is your name, but it's this name that is above every name, and that is the name of Jesus Christ. It's to Him we give glory and honor. And if you just move a little bit further in Hebrews, Head down to chapter 2, where we see this uh, author here quote Psalm 8 again. Speaking of Christ as this founder of salvation, 
And he says, For it is not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made for him a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. This leads us in this last point I want to make. I highlighted a lot of verses in the Old Testament where it just showcases that God does everything for his namesake or for the glory of his own reputation. Christ uses those same words. But nine out of ten times, the word suffering is in there. You will suffer for my namesake. They will hate you for my namesake. You see, through suffering, we have communion with Christ. He promises it to us. And I think it brings him great glory that although we suffer, we know that he has done everything for us in order that this entire universe, which has been hurt by sin, will be consummated. And that marriage supper of the Lamb, where he finally will consummate that marriage to his church, the bride of his, and he will make all things new. So it's his name that is above every name. It's his name that is glorious, and it's to his name that is majestic. I think we should just end there. How majestic is the name of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you. Thank you for being the creator of all. But not only that, you didn't create creation just to go about things on its own. That you have intricately woven your plan of redemption throughout history. Everything that comes to pass is through your ordination. You are sovereign over all. And God, that brings us great comfort and assurance that although this world tears us down, that although we suffer just affliction through circumstance and, and trials, that nonetheless, through this great name of your Son and what he did for us, we will persevere until that end, till that day that Christ comes again, or that day that you call us home. So God, would you just take this word, would you just write it on our hearts, and may we just glorify you in all that we do. So we can only do this through Christ's wonderful work. So it's in his name that we pray. Amen.